Ella Kate Marisi, and you are listening to More Than Child's Play with your host, my mommy, Lacey Marisi, and my Aunt Nicole Surgeon. They're authors, therapists, and most importantly, mommies. And man, can they talk. So sit back and relax and learn from their village. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi everyone, it's Nicole and Lacey. Welcome back to episode four of More Than Child's Play podcast. We're really enjoying bringing you some incredible people from our village, um, and we are thankful for our listeners so far and the great feedback that you're giving us. Today we are super excited um, to welcome Chrissy Keller um, to our podcast. Chrissy is a great friend of ours and a colleague for a number of years. Um, Chrissy, we call her the behavior master, um, but officially she has a bachelor's degree in child life psychology, a master's in clinical behavior application of psychology. She has taught um, both regular education and special education for many years, she's certified to teach K-12 through special ed in our state here in West Virginia. Um, and how we know her is she has previously worked for us in our early intervention system for 12 years. Currently, she's working as a behavioral specialist um, at the Renovo Center in Kearneysville, West Virginia. Um, if you've seen anything on local news, you may have noticed that West Virginia is really in the thick of the opioid crisis, and the Renovo Center has done excellent work um, for holistic care for individuals and families struggling with this crisis in our community. Um, so welcome, Chrissy. Hi. And if you could just tell us a little bit about what you specifically do at the Renovo Center. We know they do a number of wonderful things for different ages. Mm-hmm. Just tell our listeners a little bit about what you do there. So I um, almost entirely work with children um, and young adults. I see a couple of adults, but most of my work focuses on children and families and how to support them using behavioral strategies um, and also having my background in child development and being able to coordinate understanding how children and young adults learn and grow with behavior strategies that support kids who are growing atypically or families that have been through crisis. Um, Because, of course, we know that when you're in crisis that developing changes, how we develop, how we take in information. Um, I do some work with children and families who have had trauma And also, we look at how family dynamics can play a part in providing supports. We have a lot of children in foster care because of the opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. And so um, I've been able to work with some amazing children who have really, you know, struggled to be able to continue to grow and develop. It's amazing work, and it's important Mm -hmm. work. Um, Before we get started, I can just say that One of the benefits um, of working in early intervention with some really talented individuals is that when you have those moments as a mom where you're kind of struggling with, oh my gosh, what do I do next? Or is this right? You can quickly rely on your colleagues. Um, And Lacey and I both personally have used Chrissy um, in some real moments um, in our parenting journey. You know, we talk about this podcast and our business being part therapist and part mom. And on the part mom part, she's really um, saved us. 
I know in particular my daughter at three, which I joke three is the new two, um, really struggled with bedtime and had some extreme behavior, banging her head on the floor and really just fearful at night. And we had been to the pediatrician. And I had even taken her to see a friend who's a psychologist to do some um, behavioral stuff with her and nothing was working. And um, Chrissy's tips work like a charm. So my husband always refers to her as the person who saved our family and our <laughs> marriage and our sanity when we had um, two and three-year-olds in the house. And um, so for that, I'm forever grateful. So we're bringing her to you, not just from a place of professional experience, but from personal experience as moms. Um, so we hope we hope that you'll find um, this podcast helpful. We know she has continued to be helpful to us in both ways. Yeah, I have to laugh because, you know, I've called you guys both many times also. <laughs> that's the good part. What do I do next? That's the good part. Exactly. And that's why we kind of wanted to do this podcast is because we have such a great web of people around us and we wanted to be able to share that with um, our listeners and our customers. So we're going to talk today mostly about behavior. Um, and we think it's important to kind of set the stage that not all behavior is bad, correct? Yeah. So when we look at behavior, it's actually everything that we do or say that's observable, right? I have no idea what's going on in your brain. And I think it's interesting because, you know, body language speaks much more clearly than the words that we say sometimes. That's true. So when I look at any behavior, um, I always try to be very clear what did you see happening uh, or what did you hear happening and be as descriptive as possible. But it doesn't always mean it's bad at all. Behavior is everything we do. So, you know, behavior is finding something funny the moment that you laughed out loud and you look at that person's face in joy. That's a behavior. So we recognize what's reinforcing to a person. Um, the same thing if somebody is fearful. We look at what their behavior is, and that's how we recognize what's fearful. It's pretty exciting because a lot of people can misinterpret cues, and, and of course you have people who um, don't always understand what body language means or who overreact or who underreact. So there's lots of different components that go into it. And what's nice is how complex it is. It's kind of exciting and interesting too. Yeah. I remember um, when I was a grad student and I did an internship at Easter Seals and there was a behavioral specialist there and it was the first time I'd ever been exposed to anyone who looked so intricately at behavior mm -hmm. and they did an in-service on charting behavior, you know, the predecessory, I'm saying that wrong. The behavior that comes before. The antecedent. antecedent. And, uh, yes. See, this is when a physical therapist has to say these things. Um, but, but so, okay. So yes. what's funny is, again, like as you're but saying that. But to break that, it down, to, to yes. see like what happened before, what led to this behavior. Were they tired? Was there someone antagonizing them? When did yeah. they eat last? You know, and, and to be able to see people, professionals tracking that and seeing the outcome and seeing how yes. that could be shaped and molded was really interesting to me. Yes. Um, so I love to, to hear about this and I'm excited to see what you have to share. It's so you, when people use language, it's so funny. I remember when I started from birth to three and I kept being told, no, no, don't use those words, change the words you're using. <laughs> yeah. And so now those words are no longer on the tip of my tongue They're and you're boring, saying it. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my gosh, because I really broke it down into literally what did we see? 
Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Which is easy for families to understand yeah. and easy for other people. Yes. Like physical therapists trying to understand. <laughs> <laughs> so... Is there an age where you commonly see the largest behavioral challenges or there's behavioral challenges in every age? Yeah, there's so there's behavioral challenges in, in every age from the point of development, probably until, believe it or not, mid-adulthood um, to late adulthood, right? Because mm-hmm. we have things that we're all supposed to be learning and growing and doing at those stages. And when we look at behavioral challenges, usually they occur because something is impeding our way of learning growing or developing or conflicting with the way we're learning, growing or developing, Mm -hmm. right? And um, something that's super easy and super nice and friendly is, of course, Erickson. When we look at a model of child development and we go all the way up to the, the elderly in our community and that very last stage of development, very end is wisdom. Mm-hmm. So you, you just don't get it until you've gone through all these That's other the stages. So That's unfair. it. Can we, can we get there and then we might finally be wise? <laughs> I've read before, too, that you know the brain sort of swells and then proves out connections it Mm -hmm. doesn't need. That's right. And I always think it's funny that isn't it true that that happens in toddlerhood and then again in teenage years? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. So if you're listening with a toddler... You're not done. It's going to happen again when you're a teenager. And if you're listening with a teenager, you've done this once. So, <laughs> you know it's coming, right? Different behavior, but similar challenges. Um, okay, so let's talk about behavior specifically and curbing it. Okay. So I do have some absolute favorite tools for behavior that... I prefer more than anything. So in simple terms, we always look at um, from the idea of understanding reinforcers. And I know like positive behavior support in theory is this big movement in a lot of the states. And I don't think there's anything wrong with looking at things from the perspective of reinforcers. But in the years that I've done work, what I actually have seen is even more effective are um, things like overcorrecting or practicing the desired behavior. Um, And the other thing is something called an errorless learning procedure. So I'm coming at it, again, not always from typical development, but more from crisis or atypical development. We're looking at um, exhaustion or we're looking at illness in the family. So not even a defined, you know, disability, but just in general, things are not going smoothly because of other circumstances. Right. And so when we look at that, it's really hard to learn when you're in crisis and it doesn't matter what age you are, it's hard to learn. And so errorless learning procedure broken down just means we provide what we, what you need to do, but we've already broken down the steps for you and you're just practicing doing it the right way. Typical developing, uh, when things are going well, kids are curious, young adults are curious, and that's what we want, right? We want that curiosity to be engaged. But when you're exhausted because you're trying to just survive, you just need to learn how to do a scale. And so um, when we see kids in crisis, like in the school system or in the home because of many different things that could occur, we want to just give them the skill. And once they have the skill, they're going to develop some pride and they're going to have foundations that they need to keep learning and growing, right, without the hiccups. Um, So that's the biggest thing that I really believe in is errorless learning. So does that work? I mean, I could see that working for a child without 
Absolutely. Crisis or trauma. It does. The only difference is whether or not you're trying to do something, maybe say quickly, versus we don't want to impede the normal development that includes curiosity and trial and error because there's a certain amount of pride in doing something well that you figured out on your own. And that's a huge part of development. Right. So we never want to take that away. This errorless procedure is more, uh, you can use it with anything. So for example, example, spelling, spelling with a typical child, right? So how do we, how do I use an errorless procedure if my kid is really struggling with spelling and I'm like, you know what, in the big picture of things, we just need to get it done. You're going to do things like we're going to find the word, you're going to find the word match. You're going to circle the word and point to the right one. You're going to have three words, one's misspelled, which one's misspelled. Very easy to pick out what's wrong. But every time they practice it, just like a fire drill, it becomes a little bit more familiar because our brain takes it in. We start to recognize patterns, especially if you're developing in a typical way, but you're just tired or have too many things going on, right? Mm -hmm. So we can do that with any skill. We can turn anything into an errorless learning procedure. That's one of the easiest modifications there are to make. Anyone can make it, and it just comes down to practice. So anything in the daily routine, like getting along with your sibling, doing your chores. Absolutely. Any of it. So getting along with your sibling, you script it. We're going to script it and practice it. We're going to do a little game. We're going to read from a script. We're going to follow these rules, and you play it just like you would play a game right? That's how you practice it. That's an errorless learning procedure. Doing a chore, you're going to write out the the steps. steps. You're going to break them down. The very first step is finding the broom. Let's go look for where the broom is. I have kids who can't seem to find anything. So, (laughs) you know, that's often the first step in my house, no matter what I do. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. What about nutrition? Well, I want to go back. One more thing. So the other one I mentioned was overcorrection. And overcorrection is actually something I prefer to punishment, although it can be punishing. And I use that word punishment very, very loosely, right? Remember, um, we have a model at times that's used in the schools and the daycares that is just based on reinforcers. But the reality is that for a lot of these children, especially when you're angry or upset, you just don't know what to do in that moment. You lose your language, you lose everything. So say you throw something, right? I'm going to say, all right, I know you're angry, I know you're upset, but we're going to put it down and we're going to practice putting it down. And we're going to put it down until you know how to put it down because throwing isn't safe. And then when you're done practicing it, and again, it can seem very hard because I tend to say you want to do it anywhere from three to 10 times, depending on the child, the age and the situation. But at the end of it, you get to praise them. You get to say, look at you. You know how to put it down. You got this. So instead of, and I might be wrong, but instead of a timeout or Mm -hmm. a sticker chart or something more Mm -hmm. conventional, it would be repeating the positive behavior that you want Mm -hmm. many times in a row. Yeah, to make sure that you are able to do it, you recognize to do it, it becomes a habit. Um, And also then you're getting praised for it. When we put kids in timeout, timeout is something, this is one of my um, pet peeves. Timeout has been misused for so many years and in so many situations. It's really very frustrating to me. And so there is only one reason I ever use timeout, and that is a full-blown tantrum, and you just need space and time to just calm down. Um, not for safety, like I'm not going to use that if you're not safe to be by yourself. But you know, if if you're a mess, you need to just calm down. 
That's so. That's how timeout's supposed to be used. Correct. And the original intention of timeout was the timeout is for both the child and the parent. Correct. I mean, it's kind of time well, for both both ends cool to off. cool and. It can, it can be. The actual original purpose of timeout um, historically was it was used in settings where like group homes or hospitals where you had um, individuals with significant special needs. And so what was created was a timeout room and that was a padded room with a door and they would go in there and these were individuals who truly were hurting themselves. Mm-hmm. And so they would have what was called a timeout from stimulation. And it was giving them a space where there was no noise and there was no anything. And, of course, it was abused because human nature, for some reason, seems to always involve some type of taking something that could work and be safe and turning it into something that's not okay. But somebody somewhere said, oh, let's do this for our toddlers. And they compared our toddlers to that. Well, no, there's a function to a tantrum, Mm -hmm. and we need you to learn how to calm down. And that learning how to calm down also involves being safe. And like you said, if if things are overwhelming, going to a place where nobody is overwhelmed, whoever it needs to be. But we were putting kids into timeout for everything. Well, I don't know about you guys, but the examples I always use are, you know, if I'm really angry about something and you make me go sit somewhere and think about it, I'm going to think of all the ways I can get back at you. (laughs) Right? True. I mean, that's true. Okay. And then the other thing is I'm going to get really savvy about being sneaky. I'm going to figure out how to not get caught a little bit more. And so I'm like, why are we doing time out? If the child did something wrong, but they're still in control, why aren't we practicing what we wanted them to do and then giving them the praise they deserve for learning it? What happens when the child knows what they're doing is wrong Mm -hmm. and they know what they should be doing, Mm -hmm. but they still do it? So what's the function of that behavior, right? So every child is an individual. Sometimes. But I'm going to look at what we consider as natural consequences. And we've gotten away from those. Yeah, they're so important. They are, right? And yeah. so effective. Yeah. So <laughs> so we we really have gotten away from them, though. So we have all these kids and you did something wrong. Well, what's a natural consequence? No one's going to play with you. Another natural consequence. You know what? You took so long avoiding that chore. We can't go now. Right. Well, guess what? I'm not giving up my day tomorrow to take you to get your sneakers because you wasted today, you're going to have to wear your old broken sneakers for another week. You know, those right. are natural consequences, but we, we really don't do that. We kind of make life very, very easy. Mm-hmm. And I think and that's growth uh, in the struggle. There's yes. always growth in the struggle. So we yes. rob kids of the opportunity to, I mean, I do it too. Yeah. So I'm not so do I. preaching to the choir, but <laughs> Absolutely. But we, we really want to look at what would be a natural consequence. And sometimes I look at it in my job. So like I, even with my own kids, if I did that behavior, what would be a natural consequence, right? Mm-hmm. And, and years ago, and I go back sometimes historically because we've lost some of this, but you know, years ago, kids kind of went out and played on their own. And if a kid did something naughty or wrong, they lost their friends, right? right? Then they had to work out oh, I guess I should do it this way. I guess I better apologize. I guess I better share. They did social skills. They did. They did. (laughs) And they don't have the chance now to do that as much. They don't. We really micromanage a lot of that. And we also kind of micromanage some of the social interactions so they're, they're not always genuine. Right. And that's, you know, a loss to our children. Right. Yeah, and that's we we kind of had on our list here to chat about play trends and how that's affecting children, and that kind of segues right into that right now because when they have that 
and this is obviously something that's very important to Lacey and I. It's one of the reasons why we started our mm-hmm. business, but um, th- that that playtime, that unstructured playtime, mm-hmm. um, loosely unsupervised playtime, has so many benefits. Yeah, so, so this is, again, I'm going to have a little bit of a historical context here because this is what we're seeing and what we're not seeing anymore. For one thing, we're not seeing mixed ages anymore. And, right, and when we look at daycares and we look at schools, um, we had growth from having mixed ages for generations and generations. We learned from the kids who were a little older than us. Mm-hmm. We learned from the kids who were a little older than them. We learned from cousins, and we learned from younger aunts and uncles. We learned from the big kids down the street. And that's really like they were our role models. That was a very genuine job for them as well, mm-hmm. right? Good or bad, mm-hmm. but that's how we did it. The other thing that we're not seeing because of... The nature of things, I guess, is a lot of the games that we played as very young children had an important job. And they go back, they're cross-cultural, they go by different names, they go back, again, hundreds and hundreds of years in different, slightly different things depending on tools that were available. So one example I, I try to give people, um, we, we play a game, I think, Red Light, Green Light, mm-hmm. right? And what does that do? That teaches you to stop. Mm-hmm. And you learn to follow rules, and you learn to play with other kids, and you learn to be a gracious loser because there's like eight kids who lose. There's only one winner, and you want to play again. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. Or Mother May I, which is teaching you how to follow directions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we don't play those games anymore. No. And so our kids have really lost out at a very young age because they don't have those types of social opportunities. And when we look at this... Even from a bigger perspective, like um, how did kids always get that in there, even if they didn't have a group on the street or they didn't have a group on their block? You know, kindergarten was the playtime. Mm-hmm. And really, kindergarten was a great playtime because they had just gotten in command of their motor skills, gross motor skills. They're developing fine motor skills. Instead, we have them sitting for long periods of time. Really, what they're supposed to be doing is learning how to coordinate with the cognitive skills that yeah. go along with body and brain. Yeah, that's exactly it. Problem solving. Mm-hmm directions, learning how to play with others, learning who to imitate, who not to imitate. Um, but, but instead, we have them sitting and following a lot of directions and not developing that integration of skills. And sadly, I think, not with all kids, but some kids then sort of giving them a negative impression of learning because yes. it doesn't match what their bodies and their brains want yep. to do. So they're already defen- yeah, they're defensive and they're struggling yep. with a place that they should be loving and embracing. Yeah. Well, and we've, we've also taken away curiosity mm-hmm. because they're really given a lot. And, um, and because we're so time crunched, we've lost a lot of opportunity to just be able to engage. Mm -hmm. There was something to be said for go outside and play and come back when it's dark. Mm -hmm. And even a five-year-old was able to do that because they went with their seven and nine-year-old siblings, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, you just had, you had families. So like I noticed um, families and bigger groups just played together. It doesn't mean always. I'm not glorifying it, right? We had lots of other things that needed to be done at those time frames, but these are the skills that were developed. We are, yeah. We're really community-oriented in human nature, and we've taken that piece away. And a big chunk of it was learning how to be an active part as a community. Right. Mm-hmm. The other day we went to have dinner at a friend's house, and there was a mixed, handful of kids there, mixed ages anywhere from like 10 to 16, maybe even. 
and they were playing hide-and-go-seek in the house, um, and thankfully the person who owned the house didn't mind, so I was <coughs> so thankful and happy about that, but they were playing it in such a weird way, and I, I was like, what are you guys doing? And they said, oh, she taught us this new game, um, and when someone, the first person who's it finds the second person, they hide together, and then uh-huh. somebody else has to find them, then the three of them hide together, until there's one person left looking for all the people, and I was like, oh... I've never seen hide-and-go-seek that way. But I have to say, I was so excited mm-hmm. that they weren't holding a device, mm-hmm. and they were running around the house, mixed ages, and yep. learning a new game that I hadn't yep. even seen before from each other. It was, it was sadly refreshing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there's so, that's, there's so many versions of games like that out there yeah. that can be played in a house or outside. or And, and um, it is beautiful to see, but... Look at how many ways today we stop them. Like kids mm-hmm. used to climb trees. Don't climb the tree, you might break something. Right. You know, we've limited, we've actually limited playground equipment. And I, I understand the concept of safety so much. I get it in many ways. But part of it is learning how to be safe and right. learning how to know what your limits are and then building right. on it. And we talked about that um, when we did our podcast with the occupational therapist yep. that we interviewed. And she said, you know, I, when a child's climbing a tree and they have to problem solve, how mm-hmm. am I going to get down? And yep. my friends are going to tell me which limb to put my foot on. And, you know, that's confidence building. It's building mm-hmm. for your strength and your mm-hmm. vestibular system and all kinds of things. And, mm-hmm. you know, these little safe, safe. No, I mean, kids can fall anywhere, but um, what Mm-hmm. society considers a safe playground limits those options too. So so that and that actually segues into this other concept, right? That I've been seeing more of. I I would have to definitely read more research to know if it affects different ages at different ways, but that's anxiety. We're mm-hmm. seeing tons of kids with anxiety all the time. And so one of the things that I look at is Anxiety itself is ingrained in us so that we have this little, oh, this is how you have to be to be a little bit safer. But we've created so much safety that now kids are anxious about everything because they're not able to hone in and develop their own safety cues. You know, anxiety is important. We want it. It motivates us to move. It motivates us to get work done. It motivates us to look around and identify what our environment looks like. And we also aren't giving kids the opportunity to develop that. And so what happens is they're developing these responses of anxiety and not recognizing it's in them to be safe and secure. We hear that all the time. My kids can't sleep. Mm -hmm. They're biting the skin off the side of their Mm -hmm. fingers. They're throwing up for no Mm -hmm. no identifiable reason. Um, So many... Um, uh, thankfully, parents, when they see that, seek out help and counseling. Mm-hmm. But even the rates on depression and mm-hmm. suicide with younger and younger children, mm-hmm. and it's so troubling. Yeah, it comes down to we're not really addressing development in um, you know in a way that's meant to be, which we have. We have the years and years of data on child development. 
we have that there are certain skills that all children in humanity develop, maybe in slightly different ways based on culture or environment. But these are skills that we're meant to have as human beings, Mm -hmm. and we've limited them. And so when we look at behavior specifically, what occurs is exactly what you said. So the behavior of the anxiety is the biting and the chewing. It manifests itself in unhealthy behaviors. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. I never, I've never really (coughs) thought about it that way though, in terms of, um, too much anxiety because we've made it too safe. Yeah. I mean, I've read about risk taking and that that's important Mm -hmm. and choosing, make, letting them make their own decisions Mm -hmm. and have a certain amount of control of their life is important. Mm -hmm. But that's interesting that you say, you know, letting things be reasonably mm-hmm. unsafe too, so that they can develop an internal sense. Yeah, of reasonable anxiety. What do you really need to be anxious about? What's mm-hmm. a true thing to worry about? Yeah, and and to understand that you can work through it. They're not given the opportunity to truly work through things. We give them answers. Mm-hmm. You know, I can give a kid statistics or not, but. They just don't have the opportunity to work through it. And what I find that's really interesting, so when we look at teenage behavior again, and we look at anxiety rates with teenagers, one of the, the conflicts of teenage identity development is, on one hand, they're ident- identifying who they are and what they believe and what they are, and they want to gain a certain level of independence. And on the other hand, they really want to fit in. Yeah, right? It's going to be normal. They do. And so there's this huge conflict there that they're struggling to figure out. Well, then when you add into it how many kids are really struggling with things like anxiety and depression, it's, it, it does spread. It does make people say, oh, I must be depressed. Oh, I must have anxiety. And instead of us as a community saying, no, no, we can problem solve. You guys can be curious and engaged and independent and figure out, here, I'll give you the tools you need to do this. You're not in danger. All right, you might break an arm, but you're not going to die, right? (laughs) (laughs) And, And I think, too, we rob them of the opportunity of what pain teaches you or Absolutely. what discomfort teaches you. Absolutely. You have to be able to tolerate it, right? So go back to development. Our two-year-olds who are overly frustrated and three-year-olds who are overly frustrated. And so we make them learn how to tolerate frustration, but we're still doing it in a very prescribed way often because our lives are so busy, we don't have time for them to sort it out. We just don't. No. And then they, they grow into kids who can't sort it out. And now they're really uncomfortable and they don't have a tolerance for frustration. Uh, we were talking um, in my house the other day. So go back to games and play that teach you things, right? And some of this is, is um, good and some of it's overgeneralized. But I was thinking about even Monopoly. Why do we play Monopoly? Well, the TV shut off at 11 o'clock because there were no, you know, in the 70s, That was the end of it. Before that, there wasn't any TV, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's what you did. You played games that lasted for hours, but you really learned how to sit and engage and problem solve and figure things out, even as you were growing up through game playing Mm -hmm. and those interactions. and, And you were doing it often with some mixed ages, but you know, close to the same age kind of people. Sometimes the adults joined in, depending on the generation you were in. Um, we've taken away the playful opportunities to also develop appreciation of tolerance and problem solving that kind of help them 
learn and grow and not be as fearful. That's true. You talk about being busy, and um, mm-hmm. on our first podcast, we talked with Kelly Benson Vote, who is a feeding specialist, and we talked a lot about nutrition and trends in nutrition mm-hmm. and eating on the go and, yeah. and the lack of family meals. And <coughs> I'm just curious what what you're seeing in terms of nutrition and the role on, in behavior. Uh, definitely seeing uh, issues that apply to behavior. I loved working with our nutritionists in birth to three. I loved it. I can honestly say we had a number of times, and I think we've been on teams where parents would see a behavior and we're like, no, 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 this is related to they're missing nutrients or they're only eating one type of food or they're um, still hungry. Uh, You know, it's another one that I I kind of struggle with a little bit because we have a problem with obesity in this country, but I think it has more to do with not moving um, versus eating. And the other piece is we eat very controlled. We don't do a lot of um, that munching throughout the day of healthy things to keep your body from getting too hungry. And so I'll have these parents who are like, they're always hungry and they throw a fit, but they can't have anything to eat because dinner's in two hours. I'm like, they're probably hitting a growth spurt. Like, mm-hmm. of course they're hungry. I know, you know, I have a teenage boy. Oh my gosh, I can always tell he's about to grow an inch because he can't stop eating and sleeping. Well, <laughs> that that's human. And you pay attention to his body and his behavior. Yeah. It tells you something. Yeah, and we see this with our two-year-olds. We see this mm-hmm. all the time mm-hmm. with two- and three-year-olds. And then what happens is they understand food as a control issue. So now on top of that, we are actually using that to control things. Um, and really, we have history and we have research that shows that grazing is okay. Now, the flip of that is we have parents who feed snacks to their kids all day long. So I'm not talking about that. And grazing on carb-heavy carb things or snack crackers, right. chips, those kinds of things. Right. It's one extreme, again, extreme right. of our culture versus, mm-hmm. oh, you just got home from school. Of course you're hungry. Have an apple. Right. Right? Go have it. In fact, you can have as many apples as you want. I'm not going to limit you on apples. I'm right. not going to limit you on bananas. Right. Um, I might limit you on the goldfish crackers. Right. Which what about um, preservatives, additives with attention yep. and, and overstimulation? Do you see that? I do see it, but it's not I'm not in a controlled setting. So technically, you know, you have doctors that say it doesn't exist and you have companies that say it doesn't exist. What I have observed is that when we eat closer to a genuine product, our bodies are healthier and happier. Kids are calmer. Kids are able to play in focus. We've, you know, I've literally observed kids who when we remove dyes from their diet, they are able to start talking. Mm -hmm. Like some of the things that occur um, that it's really interesting because you'll hear, oh, that's not true. And then you see it firsthand. Um, I definitely think, and we look at generational, we look at where our food comes from, that our food is being grown very differently. And so there's there's a lot of basis and a lot of people out there say one thing or, or another in conflict. And my point has always been to any family, just try it. You can try it. You try it for 30 days because that's what we know about new habits, gets out of your system. You're going to know if you see a difference or not. If you see a difference, great, you're on the right track. And if you don't, great. And nobody's going to be hurt by trying right. this out. Right. That's good advice. So we opened up um, 
the opportunity of having you here to our listeners on social media <laughs> and um, through email. And I have to say, um, even though we're a relatively new podcast, the floodgates opened because parents need help and they did not shy away from questions. So we're going to um, kind of hit some of the common things that listeners asked about. And a big one was biting. So can you tell us just a little bit about why children bite, um, what your recommendations are to curb or stop the behavior, and basically what do we need to know about biting? Okay, so from a behavioral perspective, of course, biting is a form of communication. Um, It's observable. Uh, Why do children learn to bite? It's an instinct. That's that's the bottom line. If you can't talk, we're all instincts when we're very little. Um, But then... What also happens is if you bite someone, you're immediately removed from the situation. So technically, technically, we're always reinforcing the act of biting in many ways. Because why do you bite? You bite because you're frustrated and angry, and then you're removed from the situation that made you frustrated and angry. Mm. So you don't learn then to manage that situation because you're just removed from it. Yeah, yeah, and that's so that's part of it. But And I recognize you have to have safety and you have to have all of those things, right? But in that moment, you also have to look at to what was going on when that child bit the other person. Why are they biting? Is it because they're still at a younger developmental level? Do we need to provide them with different things to play or different levels of monitoring? (coughs) There's a piece that goes along with that. From a cultural perspective, it's not always realistic, right? Like I've certainly been in in homes where they're like, my kid's going to be kicked out of daycare. I have to work. We can't lose our spot in daycare. And of course, nobody should be getting bit. Like, I don't want anybody's child to go home hurt either. And so um, when you get to the point where we're looking at not at home, where you can really rectify it by meeting their developmental needs, helping them learn how to communicate and problem solve, but you're in a daycare and you just got to fix it because they don't have the ability to really work on it at that micro level. Um, I do a very behavioral approach, and that is pair it with a bad taste. And by bad taste, I never, ever mean something that should hurt a child. So my example is some some kids, and some kids love this, salad dressing is one that I've seen some kids don't like salad dressing. Another one is apple cider vinegar, which we had talked about uh, before. Um, But I've had kids who hated grapes and strawberries. Well, then I'm going to take a little tiny piece of grape and touch their lip with it. The idea being every time you bite, you're going to pair it with something that you don't like but isn't going to hurt you. And so you're going to stop biting. Um, It really still isn't meeting the function of the biting, which is teaching them what to do instead. And that has to occur in order to truly support that child in their development. But it is going to teach them that biting is not okay. And that's okay, too. So maybe using the aversive taste as a deterrent and then saying, you were frustrated because you wanted that toy. Let's practice asking for it. Yep. Or let's practice sharing or whatever. Yeah. But as an SLP, I'm going to come in here real quick. You have to keep the language simple. At the age when biting occurs, two, three years old, they're not ready for the long explanation of, you made your friend so sad, you hurt their feelings. Correct. You got to keep it simple and direct so that they understand what you're saying to them and can then apply whatever you know, replacement behavior you're modeling. Yeah. And they might not yet be ready to 
communicate period it might just be using a sign right if they don't have the words then they're using the biting in place of communicating and sometimes we're looking at some unrealistic expectations on the children Mm -hmm. they're little Mm -hmm. i mean we have we, we really are very interesting because on one hand we baby our children and we're told that we've created this nation of millennials who have been babied but on the other hand, we're forcing our babies and toddlers to do things that really aren't always developmentally appropriate. Mm-hmm. You know, so sharing understanding is, the expectations. Yeah. Plug for one, two, three, just Yay! play with me. <laughs> That's another way it can be used to understand what's typical so that mm-hmm. you're not expecting more yep. than what they're... And, and, you know, that's different for every kid because... Yep. I remember when I, again, when I was a student, I was in the school system um, working with a four or five year old on crawling. He had significant motor delays and he was nonverbal and he was peaceful and happy and easygoing Mm -hmm. and he showed no signs of distress or that he didn't like the activity or the position I was putting him in. And all of a sudden, he quickly reared his head around and bit me and broke my skin. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was like, what? why the heck did he do that? But, mm-hmm. you know, he obviously became uncomfortable but mm-hmm. didn't have a way to communicate it. Yeah. So very basic, very primitive. Mm-hmm. He was going to stop it, and he did. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's different for every kid. If they don't have the tools, we have to figure out a way to give them a different system mm-hmm. of identifying when they've had enough or they've mm-hmm. been pushed too far or they're unhappy or uncomfortable. Yeah, and again, that's a good way to start looking at your baseline for tolerating frustration, right? <coughs> so your baseline would be, you know what, um, this child isn't ready to be in a, a small group of kids. They're not. Or maybe there's a bigger kid there who doesn't know how to play nicely. Maybe the issue mm-hmm. is teaching a different child how to play. Um, you know, I have a um, an interesting way of looking at Sometimes I'll see everyone says, oh, just give it to the baby, give it to the baby, to the older siblings. And then eventually the baby's with other kids and doesn't know how to give it up, right? Mm -hmm. Well, we've created that situation versus really letting them learn in little ways. Like, well, these are the baby's toys. And then telling the baby gently, no, no, that's your sister's toy, that one you don't get to play with. So that they're learning to understand that there are some things they don't get and some things they do. Mm -hmm. Instead, it seems that we kind of leave them on their own in certain situations. But then expect that they have the tools to do it. Yeah, and then punish them, right? And then punish them for doing what they don't know. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, one another another thing that came in consistently from listeners was struggles with transitions and behavioral reactions that really range from mildly upset to physically tantruming, where children will mm-hmm. bite, kick, scream, do the the famous flop and mm-hmm. drop. Um, why is transitioning from one activity to the other so hard? How can we help kids with it? And what's your best advice for parents regarding the physical nature <coughs> of the tantrum? So when, when the child totally loses it and they're physically out of control, what do we do? So again, we're looking at different, different developmental stages. We're looking at, is this child developing fairly typically... Um, or is this child dealing with some type of issue that makes it harder for them to develop skills? And all of those things are going to affect the way that we would support that child. Mm -hmm. But from um, a a generalized behavioral context, we have to, again, look at our culture and transitions. Um, For a long time, you know, kids just 
played when they were little. That's what you did. You played. You didn't go to the store every day and you didn't go out to eat and you didn't run here and you didn't run there. Um, there's not a lot of downtime to help kids adjust or cope. Sometimes they're just exhausted. Sometimes the transition itself is really difficult because they're really enjoying what they're doing and we're stopping them on a dime, literally. You know, playtime isn't one hour from three to four every day for a little kid. Playtime is their whole world, which you guys know. Mm -hmm. That's everything to them. They are learning, they're growing, developing all of their skills and strengths and all of their behaviors. And we're literally saying, okay, you're all done with this skill now. Let's move on. Um, yeah, One. and we often will say, you know, imagine you're doing something you love. Yes. Reading or exercising <clears throat> or taking a nap or whatever. And someone bigger and older than you says, okay, done, put your shoes on, we're going here. Yes. And you have no control. Yes. Which, as a child, you know, you are at the mercy of your parent. But the abrupt switch mm. is so hard. And probably too many switches. Yeah. Like, you're just done. I'm done. Why can't I just do this? I, I had been thinking about another example because yours is the normal, right? Mm -hmm. The adult. It, nobody gets to tell me to stop when I like something. And then the flip of it, of course, is I've also learned when I need to stop. But it's still hard. If I'm in the middle of a good book, I'm going to read to the end of the chapter, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but then I was thinking, what are some really difficult transitions for adults to help them understand? And imagine you're getting ready to leave for work. And you've got to get everyone out the door and you spill your coffee on your clothes and you didn't get to the dry cleaner and you can't change your clothes. And all of a sudden you're like a mess because you've got to figure out on a dime how to make everything work because right. something changed, you know, yeah. and there's, there's that component to it because for us, that's a big deal for a child having to stop or change or because something spilled, or because they couldn't get to something, they are just a big deal. You know, that's a bigger percentage of their life when we look at amount of time and energy and effort and the number of years they've lived, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So we talk about this some um, in our lecture on play that we do for MedBridge, mm -hmm. and one of the, some of the suggestions we give are a timer and mm -hmm. um, with sand, the <coughs> that they can see when mm -hmm. the activity's up. Um, We've modeled and shared a start-finish bin with some suggestions that we actually got from the School for the Blind for kids that are visually impaired because they can feel mm -hmm. a tangible object, and when they're finished brushing their teeth, they could put a toothbrush in the finish bin yep. so they know what comes next. Um, so schedules, picture schedules work for some kids. Are, there, mm -hmm. are, are those good? Are there any other suggestions yeah. for managing the transition that you see being successful? Yeah, so for some kids, especially because you can't always use something like that, like if you're on the go mm -hmm. or if um, maybe you have a child who's not responsive to that, I actually like mini transitions that provide comfort and provide routine. Um, and you want them to be able to be changed a little bit here and there. So an example of a mini transition will be taking a preferred activity and um, pairing it just before that transition, which is unpreferred. Um, one example would be bedtime. You know, it's time to read our favorite story together. We're going to snuggle. Most kids really do enjoy that time together, right? And it does help them transition to bedtime. That's a common one we all do. Another one would be, um, even though we just talked about nutrition, you get your favorite snack as soon as we get in the car. 
mm-hmm. or you know you get your grapes as soon as we get in the car so getting in the car um, one of the things that I used was a travel bag so if we had to leave the house my kids favorite toys were actually only in the travel bag and I, I don't mean their literal favorite but toys they loved and so that was only when we had to go somewhere and so that made the act of stopping and going or waiting and going Something a little to bit look bearable yeah, really making it be. And what that's also teaching our kids is, you know what, going somewhere that we don't like doesn't have to be a burden. Um, mm-hmm. So today, a lot of people use their screens. That's what mm-hmm. they give their kids, right? And I think about all the things I learned from my grandmother. Like, I'd have to walk with her to the bank. When I was little, maybe four or five years old. I learned how to sing songs when we were walking, and I learned how to... Um, play silly games like I spy when we were walking. You know, there was a lot of uh, skills that I was developing, but they were fun. And social interaction with an adult that you trusted and loved. Yeah, and it was fun, right? Mm. So much fun. So I hated waiting in line at the bank, but it was fun. And then guess what you got when you got to the counter? Do you guys (laughs) remember what you got? Lollipop. Yes, it was the best thing ever. Why? Because we didn't have lollipops in every house. Yeah. yeah. It was a big it deal. A yeah. yeah. A special treat. Yep. Yeah. We, we have a few blogs with items for play on the go because if we are going to take our kids on the go, I think it's important to remember that we need to bring things that are age appropriate and, and fun for them mm-hmm. um, besides the screen so that yep. they're, they're entertained and can play anywhere. Um, if we're going to stop their play, they should have the opportunity to do it. At the restaurant, in line, in the yeah. car, wherever. Well, so one other thing is, you know, remember a tantrum? Uh, what is a tantrum literally? And when I, when I say that, I mean a true tantrum, not a child who has learned how to manipulate because that's, what that's you know, part of the smart of being a kid. Mm-hmm. But um, they're out of control. And they're out of control because they're overwhelmed almost always. Mm-hmm. At the end of it all, that is the function of that behavior. I'm angry, upset, and overwhelmed, and I don't know what to do. Um, and so I'm screaming and yelling and crying. And so how do we help them? It's just those basic steps of teaching them self-control and teaching them how to tolerate frustration. Mm-hmm. That's not always punishing we, we can't always be punishing. Right. So when they're physically kicking, screaming on the floor. That's literally your time for timeout. That is the only time I ever use it. So timeout for me, um, for this purpose, can look in several different ways. For some kids, depending on their age, it can be you go on the couch and you can kick and scream. I'm going to be nearby. I'm not going to be angry or upset. I'm going to be very calm and comforting because it's really important to know that they're safe. And it's really important to know once they've calmed down that you can say, I'm so glad you've calmed down. For some kids, it means going to their bedroom. And one of the things that has been interesting for me is that a lot of parents will be, go to your room until I call you, or go to your room for an hour, or whatever. That's really not what the goal is, though. The timeout should be, your room is your safe space where you go to calm down, mm-hmm. not where you go to be punished, right? And you have to change that paradigm to, oh, this is my safe space. And as soon as I'm calm, I can leave my room and rejoin everybody because mm-hmm. I've done what I'm supposed to do. If the function of... Um, a tantrum involves being overwhelmed and you've learned to be in control, we should be reinforcing that. Mm-hmm. You did a great job calming down. Yeah. Absolutely, you can be here with us. I have one child that's very um, 
spirited and emotional, and she came that way. And when <laughs> she was too, she would scream and cry and couldn't get it together. And I remember even at 18 months taking her to her crib and saying, you're not in trouble, but you need to calm down. Yep. And when you're okay, I'll come back. Yeah. And she used to cry and scream and kick and wail, and then she'd sniffle and be fine, and she'd yell, yell from her crib, I, I good now, mama. Uh, yeah. I calm. I done now, mama. <laughs> and I would go and get her from the crib and say, "Okay, you calmed yourself down." Like perfect. Yeah, we all have to learn how mm-hmm. to get ourselves together. <laughs> yes. Right, and giving kids the time and the space to learn that skill, not yeah. punishing it. And yeah. I think we sometimes, as parents, we don't have time for the tantrum. Yeah. We're aggravated already with the child because they're not doing what we're wanting them to do. So we just automatically turn it into this negative situation where we're punishing that behavior. But really, the kid is saying to us, give me the time and space. Yeah. Give me the calm and comfort. Model that for me mm-hmm. so that I can learn then to manage it. Because they do want to be a part of what mm-hmm. we're doing. They do want to join the group. We're social you know, by nature. So um, it's just so important. And a lot of these behavior tips that Chrissy has given to me over the years and to Nicole and any of the families we work with, they're so simple when mm-hmm. she breaks it down for us. And, and and make such a huge difference. So, so yeah, yeah, sometimes we overthink it and, mm-hmm. and do yeah. too much. Yeah. So the best strategy then for cooling off is mm-hmm. really giving space and modeling the positive behavior. It can be, right? And I always tell parents, what do you do to cool off? Mm-hmm. What do you do when you lose it? Well, we, we have outlets. We exercise or we talk to a friend. Well, they can't. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it is being physical. Okay. So give them a safe space to be physical and teach them a safe way to be physical. It could be throwing rolled up socks. You guys have probably heard me talk about that. It's one of my favorite things. Take your mismatched socks, roll them up. Because when you are that angry, you need a physical outlet. If you're a family that typically would go for a run or lift weights when you're frustrated and angry, you know what? Why wouldn't your child also want to do something physical Mm -hmm. to calm themselves down? There is nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. That's great advice. Um, <coughs> what about, we, we had a question about instilling kindness and empathy, particularly between siblings. And we're just wondering, is that just, do you come out empathetic? Can empathy be taught? How can we um, teach our children to be aware of others, especially those in their family, um, and recognize others? So... The answer is, for some people, they are naturally empathic, you know, and some, it's personality, right? Can it be taught? Yeah, it can be taught, but we have to model it. Um, I I think back, and this is something, you know, having gone through tween years and, and teen years a little bit, I think of being at places where mothers are like, talking about how they can't stand bullies and then they're back talking and saying comments about somebody else another adult and think their yeah. kids aren't picking up on that right right mm. we we are the biggest role models our kids have and that's that's the bottom line they're learning from us and so if we're not modeling empathy um they're not going to learn it and sometimes we expect them to learn it at too young of an age or too young of a stage just because they're not ready to demonstrate themselves developmentally doesn't mean they're not learning it and they're not going to do it when they get older. What's most important is that we're showing them what empathy looks like and recognizing that um, it's something you do because we are part of society. Pointing out others' things or people yeah. in society that might need our attention or need our friendship. 
Yeah, and simple little things like we were talking about, like, um, you know, little kids. So a good example would be a kid finds a bird that fell out of a tree, and we know you don't put it back in the tree, but you talk to them about, oh, I love that you cared about that bird, and this is what's going to happen, and the mom is going to come and bring it food, maybe, or, you know, but this is how nature works, but if we touch it, then the mama won't come for it at all. And we, we really use those little moments to reinforce that they did something. But then other things we can do is, oh, there's a dog. Maybe we should leave some water out for it. Or um, participating in activities. So one thing I'm going to say that makes a big difference is we have, we've all done, I think, the shoe boxes, right? Giving to families. But the shoe boxes, they kind of understand it, but it's not the same thing as actually representing and seeing and giving to somebody up personal and getting to have that honest exchange mm-hmm. between a living breathing person mm-hmm. you know and that doesn't always mean sympathy it means empathy again like wow I, you know what my shoelace broke it stinks it's awful the child's crying and upset because their favorite shoelace broke i'm using it as an example right. well empathy is understanding their emotion not always understanding their situation saying oh, you are so sad right now. I can tell you really loved and cared for that shoelace. And of course, I'm being silly when I say shoelace, but just modeling the language, right? And just modeling the understanding because that's all we ever want. We want to be heard and understood. Yeah. So empathy can develop. There's some people who are never going to quite be that way. Yeah, personality-wise, we can still teach, though, what is an expectation of our culture or society. Right. And I like open-ended questions. Like, this Mm -hmm. happened to so-and-so. I wonder how they must be feeling. Mm -hmm. As long as the child understands feelings. Right. And the nuances of feelings. Mm -hmm. Um, We talked a little bit a while back about the screen time, right? One thing that I've noticed is we've lost an understanding of nuances. And so if we also want to develop empathy, I think we also want to develop an understanding of those nuances of emotions. Mm-hmm. That's why Sesame Street is so yes. important. <laughs> yeah. Because Sesame Street is so good at that. Yes. They're so good at feelings. Mm-hmm. And that's what we want. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And understanding feelings. So you mentioned um, kindness and siblings. You know, again... We have to look at their developmental stages. What are they trying to do? What are they trying to accomplish? If one child is trying to learn how to be independent and the other child is learning how to play with the one who's trying to be independent, there's going to be some conflict. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't mean that they don't love each other. Um, Sometimes also the act of fighting and not getting along and us supporting them through that to resolve. You don't have to like each other very much right now, but you have to be able to be in the same room. How do we learn conflict resolution? Yeah. Same thing. That's how we learn it. Our siblings are some of our best teachers. Yes. In that regard. Yeah. And a lot comes down to, in the end, how do we teach it? Mm -hmm. So going back to, I see a lot of parents who they're like, oh, just give it to the baby. The older Mm -hmm. sibling has to always give in. Well, what that's really teaching them is to hate the baby. Right? (laughs) Why are they ever going to want to be best friends with the person who got everything from them? And the other interesting (laughs) thing is, I saw this in my own home um, with other like cousins and children and other dynamics. And that was, my daughter was the oldest, right? So when she was three or four, she was very independent and did some great things, but she was still only three or four. And so if somebody was like, can you share with your baby cousin or can you do this? 
But when that baby cousin was three or four, they were still the baby. So now they're still getting everything. They're yeah. not being taught any of the skills because we kind of create these roles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we don't mm-hmm. allow children to develop into what they should be doing at that stage of development. Right. I, I read something. <coughs> I love Drew Barrymore. And she has two girls. And I, I and she was writing something about their personalities. And she said if they were you know, locked in a room and there was a bomb, the older one would be like, okay, this is the plan. We're going to figure out how to detonate it. And the younger one would be like, we only got two minutes left. I'm going to dance and enjoy my time. And I laughed because I was kind of like, that's really how my girls are. And I wonder all the time, did they come out like that? And we probably made them like that because... The first one had to be in charge of more because they were close in age, and we assigned her probably roles that were really too much for uh-huh. her age. But, you know, one regard is she became very responsible, but maybe sometimes that's a little much, you yeah. know. So it's it's interesting, the yeah. whole nature-nurture and how we shape that. Yeah. While we're on families and, and empathy, mm-hmm. what about fairness? What, what advice do you have for children <coughs> who are really stuck on everything being fair? That's not fair. This isn't fair. So, again, we have to look at one, one piece is we have to look at developmental stage. There's a, a stage of development, usually I want to say between the ages of five and eight, depend, you know, give or take months or years, but around that place where those kids are big rule followers and they get their pride from following the rules. Mm-hmm. And so that fair becomes very concrete. And it becomes one of the rules. Mm-hmm. Well, to be very honest, there are some things that we want to always use the word fair for, like a fair game with no cheating, but life itself is not always fair. Right. So again, natural consequences. If we don't incorporate natural consequences into the day-to-day, they're not going to also incorporate an understanding that sometimes things aren't fair. Like an example would be... Um, you were late getting somewhere and there are no balloons left. You're right. That does stink. We we need to get here earlier next time. That's a natural consequence, right? Um, but what do we or see happening? It's not fair, even though you did what you're supposed to do or you're on time. You're right. Sometimes life just still isn't fair. And guess and guess what we can do when that happens. And this is where it becomes um, a parenting skill, and that is. Man, sometimes life is in skill and it hurts, but I am so proud of you because even though it's not fair, you are here and I'm just happy to be here with you. Mm-hmm. You know, you really want to turn it around into a positive. Right. And I, I always like to, I don't know if this is right from a behavior <laughs> management point, but focusing on the family kind of as a team. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that didn't really seem fair to you this time, but our goal as a family was to get here by this time or to do this. Mm-hmm. So that's just the way it had to be today. But there'll be another time when it works out in your favor, you know, but kind of taking the emphasis more off of mm-hmm. mine and my fairness and my justice. <laughs> yes. But see now, so go back again. Remember we talked earlier about games and play? Yeah. You really want to teach fair and that sometimes you win and sometimes you don't. Right. It's through those games. games. Right. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Well, so it's back to play. It does because you're right about the whole family goal, but there's wide spaces between learning that opportunity. Right. Depending yeah, on true. your age. That's true. What about um, someone asked about 
getting children to follow directions. Oh. In their words, they said, on the first time, not the 47th time. So I absolutely <laughs> loved this question. And um, I'm going to say this in as uh, nice and kind of way as I can. There is certainly a method that I know is widely embraced where our children are given three chances to do something. The and counting, the so, counting. You hear it in Walmart. You hear it so in store. What that means is that they are learning to delay doing something they don't want to do. It's escape-maintained behavior, right? Mm. We really want a child to do it the first time. The first time we ask, we're going to do it with them. And we're going to say, let's go from a very young age. It's time to get your shoes. Let's go get your shoes. We're not going to delay. And then the second time, you're only going to give them one chance. You can get your shoes by yourself or I can help you. Well, now they're two and three and they want to be independent. Most kids are going to go get the shoes themselves because they don't want to be helped. But if they have to be helped, that's the natural consequence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you need to pick up your toys. They have a choice. You can pick up your toys now or I can put them in the trash bag. It's up to you, right? You have to follow through. Does it mean throw their toys out? No, you can put them in the attic. I mean... You can do whatever you want with them, but the reality is if they don't pick them up the first time, go get them, put them away, get them out right. of reach. So if you want them to respond the first time, you have to enforce it. Yeah, and then you have to recognize that there are going to be times, again, transitions, they're not going to respond the first time because they're in the middle of something. And just like you're going to say, wait, I have to stir the soup one more time, sometimes you're going to have to also be reasonable in your expectations. Right. I always, you know, it's it's not just with toddlers, with with my kids who are teen and preteen, you know, can you guys please pick up your shoes? Can you guys please pick up your shoes? Can you guys please pick up your shoes? If you don't pick up your shoes, <laughs> right. like, why are you so angry? <laughs> well, I asked you nicely five times and you didn't listen. So the only way you do anything is when I explode and I don't want to explode. I don't like to explode. But it's the only thing that tends to get your attention. Um, and I don't like that. Right. So it doesn't, it doesn't just stop with... No. So really, <coughs> so, what you're saying, Chrissy, is I should just ask once, and if they don't listen, I should throw their shoes away. <laughs> <laughs> so, so here's where, again, remember developmental stages, right? Yeah. So what do teens want? They're teens, distracted. They are, but they also want to be independent. And, and in theory, this is what we're really teaching them responsibility. Mm-hmm. And But they're also getting, they get things, right? And so they're going to come running down the stairs and say, my movie starts in 10 minutes. And I'm going to say... I had to wait two days for you to pick up your shoes, so maybe we should wait two days to go to the movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one of one of my um, aunts said that um, they didn't. Her sons didn't do what they were supposed to do. So when it came time to drive them to baseball practice, she was like, "No, I'm not doing it." Yeah. And so they had to walk. Of course, this is back when walking yourself right, to right. practice would be acceptable. But she said, "You know, you didn't do what I asked you to do, so right. I'm not doing what what you asked me to do." And you can remind them of that, right? Mm-hmm. So because really that's a more appropriate response to a teenager and that's natural consequences. Or right. natural consequences are, you know what, I'm having company, you did not help me put your things away, which means I had to clean up your stuff. You guys are going to have to just wait. No, you can't have your friends over. No. Right. You know, I had to delay having my friends over, you're going to delay having your friends over. Right. So really making I it natural. I also find too in terms of the independence surprisingly if I'm here saying pick up pick up pick up it doesn't happen but if I go to work and I leave a list 
mm-hmm. and it's their timeline and their schedule without me being here, they're a little better at doing it because yeah. they can control it. Yeah, I would agree with that also. And that's part of it, becoming more controlling and more responsible. And more independent. Yeah. Because they're going to move out. And I say my job is to make sure you're not yeah. jerks when you live with someone That's else. right. <laughs> <laughs> you know how to pick up your stuff and wipe down the counters and yeah. keep the bathroom tidy. And sometimes, so here's another little thing about that. Sometimes, depending on the task we're asking them to do, um, and I'm looking at older children specifically, we think they know how to do it. We really are still doing too much for our kids. Oh, you know? so much. So, mm-hmm. like, my example is I would get really frustrated. This is so silly and maybe, you know, a little yucky. But I'd get really frustrated because we split up chores this year. And by chores, like, they have big chores now. So my daughter's chores to clean the bathroom. And I would go in there and I'm like, this isn't clean to my standard. And then I realized I actually never made her scrub a tub out before. I'd never done it. Right? And so she really, truly had no clue how to do it. of how to scrub a tub the right way. Mm-hmm. And so I, I had to teach her, just like you would teach any other skill. Mm-hmm. Right. That makes yep. sense. Let's talk about power struggles. We often hear this concern from parents, especially of three- and four-year-olds, mm-hmm. uh, assuming that that's the age that's common. How do we make that easier from a day-to-day standpoint? So it depends on the kid. You're going to have some high intensity, but typically they're going into that concept of rule following. And so, you know, you could certainly have a mini routine or a routine that allows for it. You could certainly say, when you wake up, you get to turn on the lights, but when I have to go to work, I get to turn off the lights. Um, So you make it a very clear rule and expectation. Um, I'm trying to think of how else to explain some of those Opportunities. Some of it is just going to be learning the frustration of, no, not right now. And that's, again, tolerating frustration at an age-appropriate time and space. Right. Right? So they're figuring it out. And that's the job. That is the job of that age. And those are nice, safe limits. And guess what? When you're setting a limit that says, no, you don't get to make the coffee today, <laughs> it also means you're setting the limit of, when I say, no, you can't play on the stove, you don't play on the stove. And when I say, no, you don't run in the street, you don't run in the street. Like we're starting with a very small, safe thing. The other piece to that is <coughs> it's a great time to give them jobs. They want to feel important and independent. Give them a job. Mm-hmm. And our final thing, really, Chrissy, that we wanted to talk with, and, and it is, I think, so, so important, um, and I'm glad that one listener who I know personally is a parent and also a principal, so her heart is sincere here, is schools. And, and behavior in school is so hard. Um, as therapists, obviously, we are huge advocates for inclusion whenever possible. And I know the principal who asked this question is as well. Um, but then you have to balance unsafe behaviors for mm-hmm. other students and for, for students that have behavioral challenges themselves. We know you've spent a lot of time in schools. Um, what, what do you see that works to, to kind of balance that, that line of keeping kids safe and keeping kids included in general education settings as much as possible? So it sounds like this is specific with kids who have identified struggles, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, I can tell you my own experience as a teacher in special education and 
working with kids who, you know, part of my goal for some of them was inclusion and for some of them it wasn't. But for me, a big part of inclusion involved having the behavior that was necessary to be safe in a classroom, right? Um, And I know that's not always possible in some schools, but really when we look at schools that are effective, they're looking at the functional behaviors again. They're looking at what the child who is struggling needs. And they're also looking at the culture of the school. Some kids really do need more movement. Some kids need more time. I was thinking about um, a student that I had worked with once who was constantly tapping a pencil. And the teacher was so angry because they were tapping a pencil. Well, they had ADHD. They're sitting in a chair, right? So also looking at what does that child need to be able to sit in a chair? In some schools, they've recognized that sitting on the ball mm-hmm. is effective. And that helps children behave. Another one is, what are reasonable expectations? So is it a child who can't behave in the classroom when other things are imposed on them? Well, then the only skill they're learning is to behave in a classroom. Um, music or art might be too unstructured for them, so they do better in a structured room. But letting them do something quietly that's easy for them, but just learning how to be in a room with other people. Mm-hmm. It could be really looking at the function of the behavior, what it's communicating. If the behavior is communicating escape, meaning I don't want to be in here, I don't do this, maybe we need to listen to that behavior and say, okay, you want to escape from math? We're going to give you math because you still have to do it, but we're going to do that in this other setting that's more appropriate. Because the truth is, that's another one you have to wait out, right? Mm-hmm. That's another one with natural consequences. Mm-hmm. I feel, too, like some of the best schools, <clears throat> and I know it's hard because resources are so limited mm-hmm. um, in education, but some of the best schools will rely on behavioral specialists to come in and consult mm-hmm. um, because they're a third party that can mm-hmm. observe you know, what's going on with the child, what's going on in the environment, and 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 give the school recommendations mm-hmm. that um, can can walk that line. Yeah, and they can. They can. So my experience, again, has been really um, interesting and something that sometimes <laughs> I love the school I'm in and sometimes I did not. And because, for one thing, you have to have a teacher that feels safe and comfortable. Mm-hmm. And you also have to be reasonable about expectations of the parent. And then you might also have a child... You know, I I have had parents who fought and fought and they had money and lawyers to be able to have their child in that setting. And really, it wasn't necessarily in the child's best interest. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just not in the classroom's best interest. So when we look at the culture of inclusion, what is the goal of inclusion, right? And so we have to look at it from its function and its foundation. Is the goal of inclusion, in my world, it was that we have children who maybe need things modified. Um, So for example, maybe they need a little bit longer to take a test, or maybe they just need to learn how to be in a space, but they're not quite ready for academics. It's giving them the opportunity to develop a skill that they can develop in a typical classroom without impeding other children from learning. So When we look at IEPs very specifically, there's a box that you check and it says, does this child's behavior, his ability to learn or the ability of others to learn? And I've always found it interesting that there are many places who are reluctant to check that box. The other thing is, 
they're reluctant sometimes to check it because you had asked way back about behavior. Sometimes the behavior doesn't look the same way. It could be they're disorganized, right? And they need strategies for organization, but their disorganization is really disruptive. Is it a a bad behavior? No, they're not hurting anyone or kicking anyone. Is it a healthy behavior for them? No, they still have skills to learn. Does it mean they can't be included? They can be included, but perhaps we need to decrease the amount of organization that's required of them. Perhaps they really only need to keep one folder, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And the rest of, of it is, yeah. Individually. <laughs> right. And how many times I can I can honestly say, you know, where I've had children in middle school especially who have not developed those foundational skills and we're putting them into a regular ed setting and they're not organized and their peers start to make fun of them and then the teacher's frustrated and then the parents are frustrated and the truth is they're like, you have to be ready for high school. Well, no, that's your timeline. Your timeline is they have to be ready for high school. Their developmental timeline is not working that way. If it was, they would be ready, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, such a good point. Yeah. So why is it such an effort? Um, and so I say this very loosely, for the teacher to keep the folders on their desk. And if it is such an effort, well, then maybe that's where you look at having an assistant come into the room for five minutes. Maybe you have one person whose only job at the end of the day for the last period is to organize folders. And that child is learning to organize one folder well, Mm -hmm. right? That's your errorless learning procedure. That's your overcorrection because they're only practicing with one, but maybe they practice it more than once. Mm -hmm. But we have expectations that are not always reasonable. And so like I, I know for some kids, it can be very dangerous, Well, you don't belong in that setting if you're a danger to yourself or others. We're not helping you with your behavior. We're not helping anybody. All we're doing is setting everyone up for failure. So um, I, I don't have a full answer because the biggest cuts in funding seem to always go to where we need it the most. Yeah. Right? And these are the kids who do need it the most. And sometimes I will hear things too, like, well, there's nothing wrong with them. And I always think that's a little bit interesting, right? Because, well, then they wouldn't be behaving the way they're behaving. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, nobody's... is a a sign that something is bothering Something's going on, Right. right. And whether it's to get attention, I love hearing that. They just want attention. They don't care if it's negative attention or positive attention. I'm like, okay, so a kid who needs that much attention still has skills to learn. Right, mm-hmm. we still have to teach them skills. They still deserve, you know, some genuine caring. Yeah, it's true. So it's so good. All of this has been so good. Oh, good. <laughs> Are there, I'm just curious if if someone <clears throat> is um, listening and they're this really piques their interest and they want to learn more. Do you have favorite resources, books, websites, anything that you would recommend for people that want to learn more about behavior? So. I have, I have one that's really um, silly. It's a little bit pricier. It's a little bit lengthier. But The Great Courses actually has a, a, a class, however they you know word it, mm-hmm. and it's called Scientific Secrets for Raising Kids Who Thrive, which you know sounds really, I don't know, I don't know how, to me it even sounded a little bit gimmicky, right? Mm-hmm. It is so well done about, child development and understanding it and understanding those foundational skills. It really 
um, and it gives great resources in addition to it. I think that was one of my favorite uh, non-school-wide things that I looked at. Another one is um, with communication. There's actually two. And there's um, how to talk so kids will listen and how to listen so kids will talk. That's an oldie but goodie. I mean, I, I first got that as an undergrad in like 1990. And there have been many reprints made of that book. Um, I think they've updated for one for teens. Hmm. But that's a phenomenal book. And the third resource that I think has been really interesting for me and I'm looking into is um, nonviolent communication. And that's really listening, learning how to be a good active listener and how to respond. (coughs) And then the other thing that um, I'm really looking at right now in increasing in terms of resources and understanding better is mindfulness, which is a Mm -hmm. buzzword. But what I'm learning is that even though we're using it, not everyone understands what mindfulness means or what it's about. And so at its very core essence, it's actually extremely behavioral. And mindfulness is in that very moment, being aware of your body and what it's doing and your mind and what it's thinking, Mm -hmm. right? And so when I talk to people, they're like, Right away, they kind of uh, clue it into yoga or breathing or meditation, meditation mm-hmm. right? And not realizing it. And so when we look at things like anxiety or mindfulness um, in the moment, like even with little, little kids, we can do this. We can be like, you're scared and angry, what you had said before. We can reflect the words to help them develop the language. Mm-hmm. Um, understand how they're feeling and give it a name. Yeah. So especially probably around the ages of three and four, I don't think it would be meaningful before that. Mm-hmm. But in that very moment, you're going to really reflect it. And then you're also going to maybe give them opportunities. So like my favorite things are, are body scans. Squeeze your toes. Now let them go. Mm-hmm. Squeeze your hands. Now let them go. I can tell you're angry because your hands are really tight. Squeeze them a little tighter, let them go. Letting them become really aware of the movements and the thoughts they're having when they feel that way. And also becoming very aware of what's happening right at that moment around you. Are you safe? Yes. Mm -hmm. Is something going on? And that also takes really good parenting skills, Mm -hmm. right? Because we have to be patient and that's hard to do. And aware ourselves. Yeah. To take the time to slow down and yep. and be aware of the environment instead of so busy, busy, busy. Yeah, exactly. So Those are great resources. So um, if you want to find Chrissy or the Renovo Center, their website is R-E-N-O-V-O-Center.com. Um, is that the best way for people to learn more about your center and about you? Yeah, I have uh, an email there. It's Chris, It's Christina at the Renovo Center, at renovocenter.com, I believe. Um, yeah, and that's a nice, easy way to be able to reach out, reach out and um, feel free to ask Chrissy, questions. Chrissy, you are, like, you're a jewel to our community. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> um, and, to, and to us, really, personally, we can't thank you enough. She's getting over bronchitis um, and took honey breaks to stifle her cough during um, our session. But we could we could talk to you for hours. We'll have to have you back again because there's so much, so much to learn from you. Um, and we hope that all of you have found it helpful. 
Um, just to remind you, if, if you want to find more about our business and any of the resources that we have available, our website is milestonesandmiracles.com with the and spelled out. Um, we have a blog there with extensive resources. We have links to social media with lots of free goodies. Um, we have links to our lectures through MedBridge Education with a generous discount code there for listeners. Um, and of course, you have access to purchase one, two, three, just play with me in print um, and in an ebook format. Um, if that's something that you can find to help you um, be reminded of what typical really looks like and to take that typical information and apply it um, to some of these behavior strategies that we've talked about today. So thank you so much. Thank, thank you for being here. We'll see you next time. Keep playing. <laughs>